Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. Two-time drag race winner, Jinx Monsoon, she's breaking barriers on Broadway as the very first drag queen to play matron Mama Morton in the hit musical Chicago. It is a performance that could be illegal in the state of Tennessee under the state's new ban on drag. The ACLU is tracking more than 400 anti-LGBTQ bills under consideration in 40 of the 50 states. Here to discuss, Jinx herself. It seems right now, drag is all people are talking about, and a lot of people don't seem to understand it. Well, you know, it's like this. Drag is an art form that was born in the LGBTQIA plus community. So if you don't take time to get to know that community, of course aspects of drag are not going to make sense to you. I don't understand every cultural aspect of every culture different from my own, but nothing about me wants to tell people to stop doing it because that's just people living their lives and being truthful to who they are. Why do we think we need to govern what other people do with their lives if it has no effect in our own. Right? Why does it matter what you look like when you wake up in the morning versus what you look like when you go out at night, right? When I wake up in the morning, I'm not wearing a push-up bra and high heels, but I'm wearing them when I go out in the world and nobody's complaining about it. Why are they complaining about it when it's you? Imagine being told at whatever point in your life, hey, guess what? Everyone's been lying to you this whole time. They've been saying that because you're female, you need to dress this way and act this way. Guess what? This whole time, you've been lied to about that, and it's really all your choice. Now, imagine how infuriating that would be if you spent your whole life following the rules, and then you were told those rules don't actually exist. I I sit on my phone in my car on the way to Chicago every day, on the way to perform on Broadway, the American institution that is Broadway. And I sit there seeing people debate over the eradication, the, 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 the eradication? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. The eradication of, of, of members of my community and my art form. And then I go and I perform on Broadway to standing room only. We get standing ovations every night, and then the people stay at the stage door to meet me and have signatures and photos afterwards. It's like, what is going on where there are some people in the world who get that I'm just a human being living my life, doing what I do best? And there are some people in the world trying to blame everything wrong with our country on me. (laughs) Do you see, because drag is so celebrated, do you see a direct correlation, a backlash to who you are in other less progressive states? 
We hear a lot of like religious freedom and religious expression. I'm sorry if your religion requires you to infringe upon my rights, then I, as an American citizen, am supposed to be protected. I'm supposed to be protected as a citizen to have the same rights, liberties, and freedoms as everyone else. And if there is a religion that doesn't agree with that, then that religion shouldn't be governing our country because that's not what our country supposedly stands for. On June 8th, 1956, young Tex Baker is found guilty of voluntary manslaughter for killing his father. Prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans makes sure probation is impossible for him, and Tex Baker is sentenced to 10 years in the penitentiary. Joe Moore, the well-known banker in town who was accused by Baker as a homosexual, He's optimistic that Baker's sentencing will taint Baker's accusation of him, an accusation that already has a few plot holes. We went over several of them in episode three, including the fishy timeline Tex Baker provided, and most importantly, the fact that Baker's friend Lee Gibson originally accused Howdy Partner Diner owner Al Travelstead, and after Travelstead skipped town, Joe Moore's name was written into the accusation. Joe Moore's lawyer, John Carver, submits a brief to the court explaining why Baker's manslaughter conviction should be enough grounds to let Moore go. The lawyer also reasons aloud that society doesn't need protection from a person who has a disease that isn't communicable. Homosexuality fits that category in 1956. The lawyer says, The all-male society of a prison, however well run, is not a deterrent environment, In some cases, contrary to deterrence, prison may represent exactly the kind of society most desired by the violator. It is exactly as if we were to make tuberculosis a crime, he goes on. Straight punishment is on a par with the Salem witch trials in moral justification. The Idaho Attorney General, Graydon Smith, steps in with a counter-argument. If a parasitic homosexual can prey upon society, including even our teenage boys, for 13 years and then, when brought to the bar of justice, be immune to our Idaho law, why not all criminals? Joe Moore and Willard Wilson are appealing their cases to the Idaho Supreme Court, so a panel of judges will review these briefs. Chief Justice C.J. Taylor reviews the cases and writes... The primary consideration is, and presumptively will always be, the good order and protection of society. The judgment and orders appealed from are affirmed. The other justices agree and unanimously reject both appeals. Joe Moore and Willard Wilson are taken to the Idaho State Penitentiary. It's right here in Boise, just a short drive from Julia Davis Park, the gay cruising ground where so many of them were arrested. This is not just a defeat for these two men. It's a dangerous precedent set to block any better understanding of homosexuality. Joe Moore's attorney, Carver, is so shocked and disappointed by the outcome of this appeal that he considers giving up practicing law. A decade later, he'll tell the reporter, John Garrisey, that he could never understand how the people, the judges, everyone, could be so blind, so unwilling to face reality and the problems that come with it, no matter how nasty they may be. 
Carver will leave Boise and return to Washington and work as Senator Frank Church's special assistant and then become the Undersecretary of the Interior. After Carver announces that he'll be leaving for Washington, the state health director is rumored to be fed up with Idaho too and also resigning, to which one state senator will say, his real crime is that he's been running the public health department as if it were a state agency instead of a plaything. In the week following Tex Baker's manslaughter conviction and the sentencing of the two high-profile homosexuals to the penitentiary, Blaine Evans, the man famous for prosecuting the remaining homosexuals, announces that he's running for state senate. Idaho! I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Gay Panic, Episode 7, The Boise Penitentiary. August 24th, 1956. Mel Durr changes his plea to guilty. Mel Durr is the local actor brought back to Boise from San Francisco by his hometown sheriff in last week's episode. Mel Durr has decided to plea guilty. He's nervous, even though he's likely to win acquittal because there's no corroborating evidence to back up the accusations made against him, accusations made by the city councilman's son, former cadet Frank Jones, on a tape recording in the interrogator's house on 16th Street. Mel first pled not guilty, after changing his plea, the judge asks Mel Durr, Are you saying now that you committed such a crime? Mel says, carefully, I do not feel that I have committed a crime. I have performed an act that is perfectly natural to me, and obviously perfectly natural to the other party. The judge replies, Well, I realize your attitude toward the thing, but I'm a judge sent here to judge you because society says you have committed a crime. Mel's trial is canceled because he's pleading guilty, and a hearing is scheduled for about a month away. In the meantime, Dr. Dale Cornell sends a letter to Judge Merlin Young. September 17th, 1956. This is in reference to Mel Durr. At the request of Mr. Melvin Durr, I am writing this letter. Mr. Durr contacted me about three years ago about a problem but was unable to clearly define it was being homosexual in nature. He was considering the possibility of entering psychotherapy at the time, but did not follow through at that time. I subsequently examined him here in Boise on March 1st, 1956 and March 20th, 1956. He was very cooperative during the examination and I felt held back no conscious information. It is my medical opinion that Mr. Durr is an overt homosexual with bisexual activities. He appeared to me to be active and aggressive in his relationships with his own kind and primarily with individuals about his own age. He has had relationships with minors, however, these were individuals who were also homosexual in orientation. I feel that he is desirous of changing his orientation at this time. I do not feel that he will be able to change his orientation without quite intensive and prolonged analytical help. 
Hence, I recommended to him that he move to a city where psychoanalysts were available for his medical care. This patient is quite intelligent and a very talented person who, I believe, would have a good opportunity of being salvaged if he would accept therapy. Trusting this will be of help, I remain, yours sincerely, Dale Cornell, M.D. Judge Young reads the letter. At Mel's hearing, a few days later, Judge Young withholds the five-year sentence. He sentences Mel Durr, instead, to six months in Ada County Jail, upstairs, and then probation. Mel Durr leaves the courtroom and is sent up to his cell. He gets a job working in the jail kitchen, where he plans to spend his six months passing the time. In the jailhouse kitchen, one day, in walks former deputy prosecutor Gene Thomas. The former lead prosecutor, Blaine Evans, has now made it to the state senate, and Gene Thomas is now the lead prosecutor. The prosecutor finds Mel Durr in the jail kitchen. He walks over and leans in close to Mel. Before you get out of here, the prosecutor says, one way or the other, I'm going to have you in prison. January 15th, 1957. Late. Lights are out, and the jail is quiet. Everyone is asleep. Mel is in his cell with his two cellmates. Mel is wide awake and fooling around with one of his cellmates, Jack Luther. Mel thinks that was probably the third cellmate bumping into the dangling light bulb, but the flash was from a camera. That dangling cell light comes on, and their third cellmate is standing over Mel and Jack, lifting a flashbulb camera in one hand and a stool in the other. He drops the stool and goes to bang on the cell door. I got it, come and get it, the guy shouts. A cop comes to the cell and takes the camera through the bars. He unlocks the door and lets the camera guy go. 19-year-old Jack Luther is immediately deposed in the middle of the night. Jack Luther, being duly sworn upon oath, deposes and says that I am 19 years of age, that my birthday is August 21st, and that my home is in Florence, Colorado. That I was committed to the Ada County Jail in Boise, Idaho on or about November 27th, 1956. That I make the within and following statements to Eugene C. Thomas, Ada County Prosecuting Attorney. That I met Mel Durr shortly after I was committed to jail in November of 1956 when he was a trustee in the jail and came to the cell in which I was confined to serve our meals. That I was in jail for petty larceny involving the theft of gasoline in Ada County. That in December of 1956, I was transferred from my above-mentioned cell to the jail kitchen, having become a trustee. That on becoming a trustee in December of 1956, I naturally got to know Mel Durr personally because he was a trustee in the kitchen at that time also. That as I got to know Mel Durr better, he talked to me about homosexual matters and started making what I consider to have been advances to me. That since December, when I became a trustee, Mel Durr and I have, as trustees, been living and sleeping in the same cell together during off-work daytime hours and during the nights. That approximately one week ago, that is about the 7th of January, 1957, on the evening of said day, I had fallen asleep on my bunk in the trustee's cell when I was awakened by someone climbing into the bunk with me. 
that on awakening, I discovered that it was Smelder, that there was no conversation between us at that time, but Durr then and there proceeded to take my penis into his mouth and to suck on it until I had an orgasm. And that I do not know why I permitted him to do this to me, nor do I know why I did not resist this act. That is about the 8th day of January, 1957. That is, on the night following the last mentioned incident, Melder again climbed into my bunk, as he had done the night before, and attempted to blow me. But that, on that occasion, I refused him and told him to get out of my bunk. And that he then got out of my bunk and crawled into the one next to mine and tried to talk me into letting him blow me again. That, on that night, I refused to let him do it, and he finally stopped bothering me. That tonight, January 15th, 1957, Durr again crawled into my bunk after I was asleep, this being sometime after 10 p.m., and wakened me by rubbing his hands on my back. That the next thing I knew, he, Durr, was taking my shorts off, that I did not protest at said time, and the next thing I knew after that, Durr had taken my penis into his mouth and was sucking on it, that I did not have an orgasm because a flashbulb went off during the commission of the act and we were stopped before it was completed, that I have read the foregoing statement and it is a true and correct statement of the facts therein set forth and I have given the same freely and voluntarily as is mentioned above. Signed, Jack M. Luther. Signed and sworn to before me, Eugene C. Thomas, Ada County, Idaho, prosecuting attorney. Meanwhile, at 1.30 in the morning, the photographer, the third man in the cell, Mayo D. Kelso, writes a statement. Here's where it really heats up. Mayo D. Kelso, being first duly sworn upon oath, deposes and says that I am a prisoner in the Ada County Jail, having been committed to the Ada County Sheriff's custody in November of 1956, and that since about December 21st, 1956, I have been a trustee in the Ada County Jail, and that when not working in the kitchen, I have since December 21st, 1956, been living and sleeping in the trustee's cell. That Mel Durr has been a trustee living with me in said trustee's cell since December 21st, 1956, and that Jack Luther has also been a trustee and in said cell during said period of time. That about 10 days ago, I noticed Mel Durr climbing into Jack Luther's bunk, which was above mine, about 10 o'clock at night or shortly thereafter, after we had turned the lights out, and that at that time, I heard a sucking sound from the bunk above me in which Durr and Luther were then and there located. That said incident has been repeated about three or four times altogether during the past 10 days, and that at about 10.30 p.m. on January 15, 1957, the last of said incidents occurred, that on said night at said time and place, I had a camera with a flash attachment in my bunk with me, and that as I heard the sucking noise commence, I got out of my bunk and looked into Luther's bunk to observe what Luther and Durr were then and there doing. That on doing so, I observed that Durr had his mouth over Luther's penis and was sucking the same. That I then and there and thereupon used said above-mentioned camera by photographing the said Durr and Luther in the act of committing the above-mentioned act of sodomy. <coughs> that I turned said camera and the film contained therein over to an Ada County deputy sheriff that the photographic print contained in a sealed envelope which is attached here too, and said envelope being sealed in my presence and bearing my signature is a print of the picture I took and fairly and accurately represents Durr and Luther as I observed and photographed them as foresaid, that in said photographic print Durr is the person on his knees and Luther is the person lying on his back. That I have given the above and within statement freely and voluntarily to Eugene Thomas, Ada County Prosecuting Attorney.
The statements obviously conflict a bit. Luther says only one encounter happened between him and Melder before tonight. Kelso says three or four. But Luther immediately signs a confession, which is all the prosecutor needs to move forward. Prosecutor Gene Thomas takes the photo and the statements to the judge, and he demands that Melder's probation be revoked and that he instead get his original sentence, five years in the pen. The judge says, I want to know what a camera was doing in that cell. Prosecutor Gene Thomas admits, well, it's my camera, but that has nothing to do with the case, Your Honor. The judge replies that this is the fishiest thing he's seen in some time, but he agrees with the prosecutor. Melder is charged with violating his probation, so it is revoked. He's brought before Judge Merlin Young again and is sentenced to seven years in the penitentiary. Mel is devastated. Walking out of the courtroom, Prosecutor Gene Thomas approaches him. Well, I got you, Thomas says to Mel. Now you're going to serve that year and many more. The Idaho State Penitentiary was built in 1870 and called the Territorial Prison because it was built 20 years before the territory became the state of Idaho. Thousands of people have lived in the state penitentiary, and very recently, in 1952, there were riots over the living conditions. In 57, Mel Durr is put in a penitentiary cell neighboring the former banker, Joe Moore. They are not well-liked in the prison. Other convicts are violent with the homosexuals. The assistant warden tells Mel, God, we don't want you people here. We're afraid to put you out in the yard because we're afraid there's going to be a riot or killing or knifing over one of you. The gays are put in solitary cells to, quote-unquote, protect them, they're told. The gay solitary cells are right above the solitary cells for people with tuberculosis. In here, in solitary, there is no running water. Mel and Joe and the others are each given two buckets, one full of fresh water, the other to be used as a toilet. They're emptied twice a day and disinfected. The prisoners can only leave their cells for breakfast and dinner, and they're always surrounded by guards for their own protection. Warden Clapp receives letters often, pleading with him to let the homosexuals go. We feel that he has learned his lesson and will profit by his great mistake, and with the assistance on our part, he will cause no further trouble. Another writes, I wish you'd give him a chance to prove he's still a man. I know you'll not regret it, I'm sure. A third letter begs, I'm willing to do anything in my power to help him if he's willing to help himself. Do you think he is truly repentant? I realize now that it's a disease with him and that he's beyond any help I can give him. I do hope you can help him get back to real life where he belongs. I hope you'll give him a break. from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. 
If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my queer history archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017, and all of my bonus episodes, the queer serial spinoff stories, forgotten fairy tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at queerserial.com slash episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history, I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at Queer Serial and at QueerSerial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. When you think about all of the huge problems we have in the United States, the trans community makes up a tiny sliver of people, yet it's getting a huge amount of focus. Yeah, and that's a tactic. And that's being done on purpose. You know what scares me is not the politician who said transgenderism needs to be eradicated. Of course, that scares me. Yes, that scares me. But what scares me more is the people who clapped for it. Because I don't even think those people think that by clapping for that, they're supporting the true eradication. 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 You're almost there. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The true eradication of a whole group of people. They just want this thing that they don't understand to go away. I'm sorry. You gotta, like, that's not how our world has ever worked. In his interviews in the mid-1960s, Reporter John Garrisey sits down with the former prosecutor, Blaine Evans. Garrisey says, That was a pretty dirty business, setting up the trap on Durr. Blaine Evans replies, Yes, but the guy could have restrained himself until he got out of jail. The former lead prosecutor explains to the reporter that, before the probation officer spoke out on Halloween in 1955 about the apparent underworld of homosexuals, The city didn't realize there were so many people breaking the law, committing these infamous crimes all over town, in the parks and the public bathrooms. Evans says that's why they suddenly had to lay down so many harsh sentences, to prove a point, to send a message. 
He also tells Garrisi that they only went after men involved with minors, which is simply not true. Garrisi asks, what about 21-year-old Eldon Halverson, whose accusations of so many men led to their convictions? Halverson was one of our best informers, Blaine Evans says to the reporter. He pinned a lot of guys. But most of those guys weren't involved with minors, Garrisi says. The prosecutor replies, Well, it's the law, and we've got to prosecute because it's on the books. Now, if you want to change the law, you can go to the legislature and get them to change the law. That's the way to do it. But if it's on the books, you've got to prosecute. Garrisi obviously frustrated, counters that Idaho has a law on the books making oral genital copulation between anyone, including spouses, illegal. Garrisi says, if you're going to prosecute the homosexual, why don't you prosecute a man and his wife? It's the law. It's on the books. Evans smiles. He says, well, it's very difficult to get testimony or evidence. Garrisi counters, suppose I came in and gave you such testimony. Would you prosecute such a case against husband and wife for oral sex? Evans thinks for a moment. No, I wouldn't do it. But you've got to get these guys because they strike at the core of society. I mean the family and the family unit. And when you get these guys crawling around the streets, you've got to prosecute to save the family. Garrisi writes in his notes that there was clearly pressure on Evans to push the prosecution in the 1950s the town and the newspaper and all the panic, plus his own campaign for state senate. Evans didn't start the cases, but he had to finish them, Garrisi writes, and now he has to justify the results to himself. The reporter John Garrisi gets to know the city of Boise pretty well a decade after the scandal. He searches for answers in the town that has almost no interest in discussing this dark chapter of their past. But he does find and interview some of the main players in the story, as you've just heard, although most of the homosexuals caught in the hunt have long left town. The reporter has been intimidated to leave town too, but he stays until he gets all the answers to his lingering questions. What became of Eldon Halverson? And what became of the final man Halverson accused, the clothing salesman, Gordon Larson? Garrisi walks through downtown Boise in 1965. He feels a natural resistance to his usual habit of jaywalking when no cars are coming down the street. He waits for the light to change. The whole city is quiet by the early evening. No one is out, not even at the bars. Garrisi looks over to the other corner where a young man also waits anxiously to cross. He's clearly in a hurry to cross the empty street, but also waiting for the light to change. When it does, he books it down the street. Garrisi sees him a few minutes later coming out of the post office and stops him and says he'd like to ask him a few questions about Boise. Garrisi asks the young man, who was 19, why he waited to cross the street, even though no cars or cops were around. The young man says, they're very strict about jaywalking around here. Christ, the city stinks. You can't do anything. Garrisi tells him that in New York they have jaywalking laws and neon lights telling you not to cross, but people do it anyway. Well, this ain't New York, the young Boisean says. Here, 
You don't do things on principle. Only the rich can do what they want. After the First World War, when xenophobia and anti-communist paranoia swept through cities like Boise, people outside of conventional norms were publicly shamed then, too. In 1920, Boise police discovered men having sexual encounters in a downtown bathroom. In an effort to stamp out the behavior, the city sent a message to the citizens by putting a rich, respected, ranch-owning, Republican official, retired War Department, civil servant E.E. Gillespie on the stand. They made an example of him. Agent Fairchild might have described him as the queen. 1920 Boise convicted Gillespie of infamous crimes to show the city that deviancy would not be tolerated. Gillespie said to the Boise Evening Capital News on December 20th, 1920, that Boiseans have misunderstood and misinterpreted him for a long time. Gillespie says, my enemies, both personal and political, will now undoubtedly rejoice. When you tune in next time, put on your Sunday clothes. We're going to court. The final man accused, clothing salesman Gordon Larson, and his accuser, 21-year-old Eldon Halverson, take the stand. Jenks, before we go, you are celebrated, you are successful, you are beloved. But there are all sorts of people in your community in other parts of this country, in other parts of the world right now, who are scared, who are under attack. What's your message to them? My message is always, you know, I mean, they're still debating whether we deserve to exist in certain parts of our country. And so I say to you, keep yourself safe because we need you here. We need you with us to keep fighting for our freedoms and liberties and equalities. You know, do what it takes to keep yourself safe and find your community so that you can live your life truthfully and unapologetically. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spinoff stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process. 
and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queer serial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift, or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Bye.